Bible tonight to Revelation chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, uh, just lift up your hand and Stu is making his way through. He'll drop off a Bible to you. Now, I had originally planned to try to get through two of these churches tonight, um, you know, on time. That's always the plan. Um, we'll see how it goes. Pray that I don't start coughing. But uh, we're picking up in chapter 2, verse 18, the church in Thyatira. Now, in our study last week, we examined the church at Pergamos. And the lesson that we learned as we looked at that third of seven churches there is that bad belief leads to bad behavior. Inevitably, invariably, if you're believing wrong, it's going to manifest itself in behaving wrong. Or another way to say it is what a person believes is going to have a direct influence on how they behave. And therefore, Jesus addressed that church and spoke to them concerning the importance and the priority of good, sound Bible doctrine. Some people will say that it doesn't make a difference, but it does make a difference. Because if you believe wrong, you'll ultimately behave wrong. And he warned them that they stood in a path that because of the direction they were going, that he was actually standing against them, that his sword was drawn and he was ready to oppose them because of the direction they were going. Not because he was angry or hostile towards them, but because he ultimately loved them and didn't want to see them continue on a path that would ultimately destroy them. So he was standing in the path in opposition to them, much like he stood in the path against Balaam as he went to the king of Balak. And now as we come to this fourth church, the church in Thyatira, we see what happens to a church or to an individual who persists to live a compromised life. We see what happens if you don't heed the warning that Jesus gives in Pergamos, where you will end up as you become, in a sense, a congregate at the church of Thyatira. If Pergamos is the compromised church, then Thyatira signifies the corrupted church. In verse 18, Jesus addresses them and he says, Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Thyatira was probably the least significant of all of the cities that are represented in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. You remember that Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos, that they were all seacoast cities, royal cities, if you would. And they all possessed a certain mark upon them. Ephesus was the political capital. Smyrna was the commercial capital. And, uh, you know, Pergamos was the, uh, um, <clears throat> another one. <laughs> but the last four of these churches that we look at are inland from there. And, and they drop off as far as worldly significance is concerned. Thyatira was located on the bank of the Lycus River and the mouth of a valley that connected the trade routes in Asia Minor. It was kind of a natural roadway that connected the east and the west and the north and the south. 
And the city became prosperous under the sponsorship of the Roman Emperor Vespasian. And it was the headquarters of many of the ancient trade guilds. The potters, unions if you would. The potters union, the tanners, the weavers, the robe makers. And especially and primarily the dyers. Those that would color garments. Thyatira was known for the scarlet dye that was produced in that place by a plant that was native to that region. You recall from the study of (coughs) Acts chapter 16 when Paul went to Thyatira and he met a woman named Lydia who was a seller of purple or scarlet who was from the region of Thyatira. Thyatira was known for that type of thing, the, 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 the dyer's union if you would. And the general attitude amongst the citizens of the city there in Thyatira was just one of general complacency. That we're secure, we're funded by the emperor, we're defended by the elite Roman guard, we're situated in an exclusive trade route, we're neither extremely rich nor extremely poor, wherein anybody would be hostile towards us, and we're productive in our various industries, so we really have nothing to worry about, nothing is really going to harm us. As far as the church is concerned, what we can gather by reading here in this letter that Jesus writes to them, There was no evidence of persecution or poverty like we saw in some of the other epistles. There's no indication that there was oppression from the enemy that was going on there in that place. But rather, they had, they possessed a general existence of ease. They kind of had it easy. But as is usually the case under circumstances like that, this leads to deep and damaging problems at the core of the Christian life. I read recently the verse in Psalm 119, verse 67. That's the longest chapter in the Bible, and my Bible was just kind of open to it, and I looked down and my eye caught this verse. 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. And then just a few verses later in verse 71, the psalmist says again, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Well, the church in Thyatira was one that had an existence of ease, an absence of affliction. And the result of that is that there were deep-rooted problems at the very core of their Christian values. There was neither persecution nor poverty present within this church and deep corruption had taken root to the point where now they stood at the place of judgment before Jesus himself. Notice how Jesus addresses himself to this church in his salutation to them. Three things that he uses out of chapter 1. He says, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. These are <coughs> excuse me, all terms that signify and speak of judgment and discipline. When Jesus addresses himself to them, first of all, as the Son of God, it's a reference to the seat of his authority. The power that he had received of his Father to be the judge of the living and the dead. It's a direct reference to what Jesus himself said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 22, where he declared to them, For the Father judgeth no man, but committeth all judgment unto the Son. 
and his sonship and the authority that was transferred to him of his father, the authority to bear judgment. Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, and he said, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father exalting the Son to this place of judgment. And then, of course, the psalmist declares in Psalm chapter 2, that famous psalm about the Son of God. Unto the Son he saith that he will be granted to rule with a rod of iron with which he will break the nations in pieces as a potter's vessel. And it's interesting that 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 psalm, Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, is used in that context because Jesus himself quotes this very verse in this letter to the church in Thyatira, if you just glance over to verse 27. The authority that the Son will have to rule the nations with a rod of iron and breaking them in pieces. He stands as one that has authority to judge the Son of God. It speaks of His authority, able to judge. But then he says, the one whose eyes are as a flame of fire. And this doesn't speak of his authority to judge, but rather it speaks of the means of his judgment or the method by which he will judge. It says, and we saw this pictured there in chapter 1, that his eyes were like unto a flame of fire. If you recall from Paul's epistle to the Corinthians... And he talks to them about how the foundation of Jesus Christ had been laid in their lives and that they had been born again and blood bought by the power of the Son of God. But he warned them and he said, take heed how you build upon this foundation that's been laid in your life. Because the day is going to declare every man's work what sort it is, whether you've built with gold, silver, and precious stones, Things that can endure the flame of the fire and survive through its judgment. Or if you've built with wood, hay, and stubble. Things that will be consumed and vaporized before him with whom we have to do. And Paul warns us and he says that every man's work is going to be judged for what manner it is. Now when I read that verse, you know, as a younger Christian, I used to think that when we stand before Jesus, there's going to be this giant furnace with a great conveyor belt. And that all of our works and things that we did for the Lord are going to be placed one by one in some fashion upon this conveyor belt. And we'll just kind of watch as they go through and the fire does its work. And, you know, you sift through the ashes on the other side and see if maybe there was some pure motivation or something (coughs) worthy. But I don't think that anymore. Because it tells us here that his eyes are as a flame of fire. And I firmly believe that as each one of us stands before the resurrected Savior, that in that instant, that moment that we stand there before Him and we catch one glimpse from His eyes, instantaneously, everything is going to be perfectly manifested exactly for what it was. Every motive that we had for the things that we did. All of the attitudes and aspirations that we held and and you know we're affectionate towards as we did the things that we did for Christ are going to be revealed for what they are and that which survives that which was done of a pure heart and done through pure doctrine and through a righteous motivation that those things will endure but the rest will be vaporized before us 
And he says that the, the soul will be saved, yet as by fire, he says. And the means of his judgment are his eyes, a flame of fire, the Son of God who sees all things. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that all things are naked and opened in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That he sees all things perfectly. That you can't deceive him or in any way pull the wool over his head, so to speak. But then he goes on and he says that his feet were like fine brass. His feet are like fine brass. And this doesn't speak of the means or method of his judgment, but it speaks of his power to execute judgment upon those that are his adversaries. He's going to devour and destroy his adversaries. And it's a fearful thing for the church in Thyatira to be greeted by the resurrected Savior, the one who owns and bought the church with his own blood. It's a fearful thing for them to be addressed by him in this way. But then in verse 19, he gives to them a positive affirmation. He looks in and he examines them and he says, I know thy works and your charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Now, when he opens up this verse and he says, I know thy works, remember that this is a, this is a, the standard format of all of the epistles. To each church he has said, I know thy works. And, and if you would, it's an introduction of what he's about to say next. And then he delineates these things. He says, your charity, your service, your faith, your patience, and thy works. And he says, the last to be more than the first. <coughs> In a sense, what he's saying to them is that your works outweigh the first four things that I mentioned there. The works, the last, the works are more than or outweighing or weightier or of more substance than the first four things that I mentioned. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, the first four things that he mentions, charity, ministry, it's a word in the Greek, faith and patience, are all fruit-based substances, if you would. Galatians chapter 5, 22 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, which is charity, joy, peace, patience, goodness, meekness, kindness, self-control. That all of these things are the fruit that the Holy Spirit births within the lives of God's people. Works are not... <laughs> excuse me. <coughs> Works are based upon the fruit that is born within the heart. The fruit is what happens internally. What manifests from that fruit is the works then that we do. So for Jesus to look at this church and say, the last is more than the first, what he's saying to them in a sense is kind of a jab or an indictment as if to say that the works that you're doing are not in equality to the fruit that is born in your heart. In other words, the works that you're doing aren't coming from the right place. They're not birthed in in, in, a, in a right motive, and they're not born out of the fruit that's been worked in your heart. People do things for the Lord all the time for, with false motivations. Reasons that are corrupt, or you know, reasons that aren't just because of what God has worked into the heart. People serve God or, or do things, works for the Lord, for the motive of recognition. Being recognized by someone in the church. 
having their name put on a plaque or having a bouquet of flowers put in the front of the church in honor of what they've done or to have their name upon a particular seat in the eternal sanctuary or to have a a, a part of a stained glass window dedicated to them. It's wrong motivation. Some people are motivated by notoriety. You know, the, the accolades that they'll get or the position that they'll hold or the badge that they'll wear because of the service they perform. Some are motivated by compensation, what they're going to get in exchange for the service they render in His name. Some are motivated by guilt, that God needs $1,000, or God needs people to cut the grass, or to watch the kids. And if you don't do it, then, well, God's putting it on your heart, and people are motivated by guilt. It's a wrong motivation. People are bribed, oftentimes, to serve God in subtle ways. And I think that the worst false motive of all, because it's so subtle, is that of need. Well, I'm doing this because of the need. There's a need that's present. That's a hard lesson to learn in the Christian life, is that we're never called to, to give ourselves to the need, but we're rather to give ourselves to our calling. What are you called to do? Because the needs are always going to outweigh the, call, or the, you know, the, 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 the means of meeting those needs. And so we're not called to, you know, go to the need, but rather to the calling that God has placed within our lives. But people do it. They serve God for false motives. It isn't a result of the fruit that's been born in their heart because of the love they've received and have for the Lord. But rather they're doing it for some other reason. And Jesus is saying that your works outweigh your fruit. That there's something amiss in how that proportion is laid out. However, in verse 20, he goes on to say, Notwithstanding, or nevertheless, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. I have a few things against you because you suffer or allow that woman, Jezebel. One of my favorite sections of scripture is to go through the Kings and the Chronicles. Many of you I know like to read biographies of saints of old, people that you know kind of walked the walk and are dead and gone because you want to learn from their life. And that's the same reason I like going through the Kings and the Chronicles. Because you get to go through these lives of these numerous people that God raised up and gave gifts and authority and privileges to and see how they did with it. And and one of the things that amazes me as I go through the Kings and the Chronicles is that David, this man who was really the first real king of Israel, the man who had a heart after God, the man who loved God and and who is really held up as the gold standard of a king who served and, and lived after the Lord. That as soon as David passes off the scene around the you know, year 1015 BC, somewhere around there, everything goes downhill. That after David, there's never again a king in Israel that serves the Lord with all of their heart. It just goes downhill. The standard is lowered. And only, ni- <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> only 90 years after David passes off the scene, A man named Ahab becomes the king in Israel. 1 Kings chapter 16 verses 30 and 31 say this about Ahab. It says, Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. 
And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. That this man uh, Ahab, that he took to wife this wicked pagan woman Jezebel, And that this woman was the driving force behind his turning away from the Lord and really the turning away of the nation from the things of God. Jezebel and Ahab turned the nation of Israel from Jehovah to Baal. They killed the prophets of the God of Israel and made it a capital crime to serve him. You recall that Elijah was in hiding and in captivity and you know Obadiah was hiding the prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave because the decree of Jezebel was to wipe them out to destroy them Jezebel framed (coughs) and murdered a man named Naboth in order to take possession of his vineyard and to give it to Ahab as a gift and in first Kings chapter 21 verse 25 at the end of his reign When God looked over all of the works of Ahab, God has this to say. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. That Jezebel was the driving force behind the wickedness of Ahab and ultimately the turning away of the nation of Israel to these false idols into the judgment of God. Now, in context with her character and what we know of her from reading the Kings, what does Jesus mean when he addresses the church in Thyatira and he says that you suffer that woman Jezebel to teach and to seduce my servants and to fornicate and to eat things offered unto idols? Well, in Pergamos, the last church that we studied, The sin that had them in danger was the doctrine of Balaam, which was that it's okay for the church to be married to the world. But in Thyatira, (coughs) the sin is one step greater than that. It isn't marriage to the world like it was in Pergamos, but rather the sin in Thyatira was marriage with other spiritual things and other false gods. That it's okay for the church to be married to other religions and various forms of weird spirituality. Whenever you read about fornication as it concerns God and his people, it isn't speaking of the act of a man and a woman like it does in 1 Corinthians when Paul says that fornication is, is is a condemnable sin. But fornication spiritually is when the people of God turn away From the Lord their God. The one who bought them with his blood. The bride of Christ so to speak. And they commit adultery against the Lord. By giving themselves to some other strange form of spirituality. Or some false religion. Or some system of idol worship. That's spiritual fornication. And that's what the church in Thyatira was guilty of. We know that because he uses Jezebel as the example. They were turning away from the Lord and they were mix and matching their Christianity with pagan spirituality and other false means of trying to connect religiously. And God condemns them for it. 
we're going, we, you know, we constantly, and don't think that we're spiritual. We don't do this nearly as consistently as we'd like, but we, we try to take our kids through the Bible just consistently as much as we can. You know, we have crazy lives just like you. But we recently started over in Genesis, and it's been fun to go through it with the kids and to, to go through the creation story with them. And we recently came across, you know, just in chapter 1, verse 26, where it says that God said, let us make man in our image. And I stopped there when I read that verse to them, and I began to kind of discuss with them what that meant. What does it mean that we were made in the image of God? And, you know, they gave their answers, well, arms and legs, you know, and this kind of thing. And I said, yeah, you know, as much as we can gather, you know, that's true. Three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And I said, but here's the thing that I want you kids to, to never forget. Is that if God created us in his image, then that takes away our right to create God in our image. He created us in his image, and therefore he alone possesses the right to tell us who he is. We don't have the right to tell God who he is and try to create him after our image. The church in Thyatira was creating God in their own image. Jezebel worship or spiritual adultery is to create God in my image. <coughs> Take the aspects of Christianity that I like. Redemption. Heaven, sins forgiven, but then take the things from Eastern mysticism that appeal to my personality or take the things from American commercialism that, you know, resonate with me culturally and to kind of mesh and blend this Christianity with other things that God doesn't declare in his word that is the true worship of him and to call that my form of Christianity. That's an abomination unto the Lord. I speak to people on the jobs in the city all the time, you know, and, you know, it's very uncommon for, uh, you know, kind of a, I don't, I'm not trying to be racist, but a white construction worker down in the city. It's really weird. You know, I walk around and I'm really a minority in, in a lot of ways. And I'll, and I'll, you know, come into these groups and I'll see these different types of people that are there. And I try to share as, as much as I can. Again, I don't want you to think that I'm spiritual. I miss more opportunities than I capitalize on. But I came into a, a group of these, you know, West Indian men up on the roof, and they were all passing around what they call it a spliff. And, 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 and I, I kind of overheard them from around the corner, and they were arguing about who was better at smoking marijuana. You all don't know nothing about smoking weed, man, you know, and they're, they're going back and forth in this whole thing. And so I kind of interjected, you know, as they were disbanding from their activities. And, and, and I tried to strike up a conversation about the Lord. And it's amazing. They're all, they're all saved. They all know God. We all worship the Father. You know, they say, and, and they go into this thing. But it's a Rastafarian brand of Christianity. They've taken the elements of their culture, mixed it with the things that they like about biblical Christianity, and they have this weird form of idolatry. That's what it is. It's a worshiping of a false god. I struck up a conversation with another man on the job, and he was from Africa. And he, being from Africa, could not accept that the savior of the world was a white man. And he, you know, talked about Africa being the motherland and the cradle of civilization and, and all this stuff. And I, and, I, and I said to him, I said, well, listen, I hear what you're saying. 
I understand why because of your history or because of your culture, you know, you, you would kick against that. But I said, have you ever considered that Jesus chose the Jews, the most hated of all races historically and even to the present day? That he didn't choose to become African or American, but he chose to become Jewish so that everyone would be able to relate to that. The Jews, the most hated of all nations. And, you know, that became the platform of our discussion. And we went on. But I see this all the time. I I speak to a lot of Americans. And they want to mix God with the free enterprise system. (coughs) I remember when I first got saved. And I didn't know much at all. I just knew that I wanted God's will for my life. And I was working for a painter. And one of the, you know, the, the owners of the company was there. And he was painting. He was a teacher. And he would spend his summers painting. And so we were there. And he looked at me. And he, trying to be an influencing factor in my life. He said, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, I, 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 I'm a Christian. And I really want what God wants for my life. And he looked at me. And he goes, I'm a Christian too. God wants you to make money. That's what he said. And I said, you know, I don't know much, but I have a feeling that that's not what God is pacing back and forth in heaven about concerning me. (laughs) But we see this in this country, don't we? We hear this prosperity type of teaching that God wants you to prosper and to be... Listen, God is not an American. We can't mix and create God in our image because of the things that we like or the things that resonate with us. And when the church takes these types of positions, you mix biblical Christianity with whatever makes you most comfortable, and you say that that's okay. But the Bible says that that's spiritual adultery. It's fornication, spiritually. And that you stand in a place of judgment before Jesus Christ. But the good news is, in verse 21, it says that I gave her space to repent of her fornication. And she repented not. The good news is that God is so patient and he's so gentle the way he works with us, the way that he slowly and gently reveals to us the things within our life that we maybe we believe amiss or where we've mixed something in that doesn't belong and he doesn't smite us, but he gives us space. You know, I I talk to a lot of people and they, they, they often are frustrated. They say, you know, why can't my uncle see it or why can't my wife see it or my husband or my kids why can't they see that what they're doing is wrong (coughs) and i'll ask them this question because it's the only way i can really relate it to them is that have you ever i'll ask them do you do you ski and they'll say well yeah you know not professional but i know how to ski i said do you use poles when you ski yeah i use poles one of the first things they teach you when you're first learning how to ski is that you don't need those poles and and the instructor i remember said give me your poles and i said no but he said, you don't need the poles. The poles aren't helping you. All of, the, all of the balance is in your legs. You don't need those poles. Give me the poles. I said, I'm not giving you the poles. Now, when the instructor was gone, and I was trying to figure it out on my own, then I would say, all right, well, let me try it without the poles. And maybe I put the poles in one hand and just, wow, you know, I really don't need the poles. But listen, no matter how much that instructor begged, pleaded, or beat me, I was not giving up those poles. And do you know that there are certain things in people's lives that are unnecessary and sometimes maybe even damaging in their Christian walk. But let me tell you something. They're never going to give you their ski poles. They'll give them to God. 
They'll try it out on their own, but they're never going to give them to you. So let me give you a word from God. Shut thee up. (laughs) He gives them space to repent. And he's so good at it. Romans says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And time after time in my own life, those little things that God has worked in and through my life, by the patient, gentle waiting and prodding of his spirit within me. He's so good. He gave her space to repent. But the bad news is that she repented not. And so he says, behold, I will cast her into a bed. And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. (coughs) Interesting picture. The bed speaks of marriage itself. And what he's saying to this church is that you've cheated on me. You've been unfaithful in your marriage to me. And so my judgment upon you, the sentence because of this fornication is going to be that I am going to perform a marriage for you. But what is it that they're going to be married to? Tribulation. You're going to have an inseparable bond with tribulation. I'm going to cast her into a bed and them that commit fornication or adultery with her, except they repent of their deeds. That God is saying that if you persist in this thing of mixing me with Eastern mysticism or Rastafarian beliefs or American fornication, literally, or whatever else it might be, that if you persist in this, you're going to find yourself joined with perpetual tribulation. Except you repent of your deeds. It's a high cost. I don't know if you've ever experienced tribulation that is ceaseless or seemingly so. But it isn't the place that you want to be. But he gives to them a corrective (coughs) (coughs) exhortation in the following verses. The first thing he tells them very plainly, pointedly, and practically in verse 22. He says, repent. Repent. What is repent? It means turn away. Turn away from it. It's just an act of the will. It isn't even an act of the flesh yet. It's just an act of the will to say to the Lord, I repent of this area of my life where I've compromised or where I've been corrupted, where I've been deceived by my own flesh or by the devil or some Jezebel spirit that seeks to corrupt the church. He says, repent of it. The second thing in verse 23 is he says respect. That is his power and his authority. For he says that I will kill her children with death. That, that speaks of those that follow in her footsteps. Those that follow this path and continue on propagating this idolatrous religious system. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Respect who he is. He's the son of God. He bears the sword. And his feet are like fine brass. He has power to execute the judgment that he has decreed. And then in verse 24 and 25. Or verse uh, 24 rather. He says, but unto you I say. (coughs) Excuse me. And unto the rest in Thyatira. As many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none 
other burden. The third word of counsel that he gives to this church is hold on to those things that are right. Don't let them be taken from your grip or slip away out of your hand. But hold on to those things that you know that are good and you know that are right within your life. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He says, to the overcomer, to the one who who gains the victory over this thing, two things, that you will rule and you will reign with me. That you'll be on the other side rather than one that faces the judgment of God and impending doom and destruction and tribulation. You'll be behind me. And you with me will rule over the nations with the rod of iron, just like it speaks of in Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, breaking them in pieces with a potter's vessel. Seeing the destruction that sin brings, not from the vantage point of being destroyed yourself, but from the vantage point of being with Christ in his domination over iniquity and over sin. And then he says in verse 28 that he's going to give to them the bright and the morning star. And that speaks of the very presence of God himself. That he is the morning star. He's going to give himself to them. They're going to know his counsel, his goodness, and his love within their lives. What's the lesson that Jesus is giving to us tonight as we study the church in Thyatira? It's very clear. It's very concise. Listen, church. It is not acceptable with God for you to cut and paste your Christianity. To take the things, the doctrines of biblical Christianity that resonate with you and then take the things that resonate with you naturally and culturally and physically and to mesh them in and call it biblical Christianity. It's not acceptable with God to do that. And yet we see it so prevalent in our society, in our churches and in the lives of Christians. And we wonder why, why there's problems as it goes on. We ate at a restaurant recently where you could kind of create your own special. You know, you could pick, you know, five, <coughs> five or six things on the list and kind of create it the way that you like it. And people come to church and they want to do the same thing. Well, I'll take the blood of Christ and I'll take forgiveness of sin and I'll take power from the Holy Spirit, but I'm not going to take repentance of sin. I'm not going to take, you know, that, that we're to flee fornication and youthful lusts. I'm not going to take that I'm not allowed to be bitter at the person who burned me in my youth. I'm not going to accept that I have to forgive even as I've been forgiven and to let go of those things that, that, that I'm holding on to that that person did to me. And so I'll take the things that I want, I'll order off the menu, and I'll kind of create my own special, my own special form of Christianity. Listen, church, that is not acceptable with God. And if you want to know how to grieve and quench the spirit and then ultimately find yourself in a place where God is in opposition to you, standing in front of you rather than you standing behind him, then continue to mix the world, mix other spiritual forms of pseudo-Christianity with Christ. But Jesus is speaking very clearly that it is not acceptable with God to cut and to paste 
Christianity. We'll stop there tonight. And next week we'll go through the church of Sardis and hopefully Philadelphia as well. And then we'll have a great special week on Laodicea that I hope everybody comes to, you know, uh, as we wrap up this, these seven letters to these seven churches. But as Brad comes, I just pray that, that the Lord would speak to you. I, I really believe that the purpose of, of these letters, I mean, I remember that when I was kind of being discipled at the church that I came from in Rochester, you know, um, the, the pastor is a very good discipleship pastor. And he would, um, you know, constantly meet with us, you know, not individually, but in groups. And he would just share with us, you know, and we, we used to love that. But what he would do, and I think he did this on purpose, is that he would always leave his prayer list on his desk. You know, and there would be four or five pages of just little one sentence things that he was praying for. And me and some of the other guys, we would often sneak in there and we would want to see the things that he was praying. Because oftentimes our name would be somewhere on the list. And so we want some insight. We want to know, well, what, what is it that he's praying? What does he see? What is it that he might be, you know, <coughs> you know, just praying about and recognizing? Because we wanted insight. We wanted to see what someone more mature than us saw in our lives. Well, these seven letters to these seven churches are, in a sense, the checklist of Jesus' prayer list. And if, if you could, in a sense, transfer yourself and sneak into his office, and there upon his desk are these seven letters to these seven churches that show us all of the things, the potential hazards or potential blessings that face each one of us as Christians, I wonder where we would find something circled with maybe our name penciled next to it. Lord, what is it that you see in my life? And I believe that Jesus wants to speak to you personally. That he wants to instruct you practically. That he wants to motivate you eternally. That he would speak literally and, and, and clearly into your life the thing that he's doing or the thing that he sees. And my prayer for you is that you <laughs> not catch this cold. No is that maybe you would take the time to go through and to look at these things and say, Lord, you know, you said that you would speak to us. You said to ask of you and you'll show us great and mighty things that we know not. Lord, you said that you who began a good work in us, that you're going to be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. So, Lord, please speak to me. Show me, Lord, where in my heart adjustments need to be made. Show me, Lord, where perhaps there's some Baalism or a Jezebel spirit within me. Lord, show me where I've left my first love or where I've called myself a Christian in name only or whatever it might be, that you would take the time, that we would take the time as a church, as individuals to say, search me, Lord. Know me, try me, know my thoughts that I might walk with you in white. That I might have that new name written on a white stone that I would rule the nations with you. That I wouldn't miss out on anything that you have for me. Because of a position I've taken in ignorance or in some act of rebellion. May God give us wisdom. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this, this word that we've heard tonight. And I pray, Lord, that you would apply it personally. That we would hear your voice. That we would be corrected and adjusted. That we'd be addressed by you. Lord, you said that we could come. You said you'll never leave us or forsake us. That you're with us always, even to the end of the age. 
Your word says that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, making access whereby any one of us can come in and sit with you. Where we can have your eyes as a flame of fire scan over our lives and that you'll communicate with us and speak to us and comfort us and teach us and feed us and grow us. And I pray for each person here tonight, Lord, that even at this moment right now, you would pour out your spirit in a fresh way. Lord, you see the hearts and you hear the prayers that are being lifted up even now silently to you, where people are repenting of things. Where maybe you've put something in their mind that is present within their life that you want to lift away. May your eyes of fire consume it perfectly. And may your spirit fill us absolutely. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bless your people, that they would leave here revived and refreshed, rejoicing in the power of your Spirit to work within their lives, and that you would do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Have your way in this place here tonight. Receive this offering of praise that we give to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.